Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Hello and welcome to a History of Europe Key Battles podcast. My name is Carl Rylett and today I'll be continuing the story of the First World War. Last week we looked at the beginning of the war in 1914 on the Western Front. Today we turn our attention to the Eastern Front. Looking at the Eastern Front in 1914, political logic would have led the Austrians to concentrate their attack on Serbia, who they blamed for provoking the war, while the Russians would advance south to rescue their Serb allies. However, the Russians were determined to strike hard against their most powerful enemy, Germany, in support of France, and the Austrians were therefore obliged to provide support for their German allies. A century previous, Poland was partitioned between Russia, Germany and Austro-Hungary. The division of territories which resulted from this might at first glance, on a map, look as if strategically, on the battlefield, they favoured Russia. That is because Russian-held Poland, which was centred on the city of Warsaw, was shaped like a salient, that is, a piece of land which projects into another. In this case, it was the land between the Carpathian Mountains in Austria to the south and East Prussia to the north, and it particularly appeared to threaten the German-controlled territory of Silesia. On the other hand, this same salient might also be regarded as vulnerable for Russia, an exposed area flanked on both sides by enemies. Austro-Hungary had to plan for several different scenarios, the Chief of Staff, Konrad von Hutzendorf, had detailed plans for conflict with Russia, a separate one for the Balkans, and another for war with Italy, as well as combinations of the above. Although at least formally Italy was an ally of Austria and Germany, neither trusted the Italians to keep to their promise of help, as it turned out with good justification. The Empire's armies were from a whole mix of nationalities, which presented various challenges, including of language. Any new officer arriving at a regiment was given three years to learn its language. This duty was taken seriously, and all Habsburg professional officers were proficient in at least two tongues. The army's biggest problem was that it was not large enough, only about half the size of the mobilised Russian army. 
Additionally, the low proportion of the male population drafted in peace meant that there was a relatively small pool of trained reserves to act as casual replacements in war. In addition, the non-German nationalities were not so motivated to fight for the empire. In peacetime, while 3% of German-speaking Austrians had attempted to dodge the three-year military conscription, the figure among Czechs was about 7% and for Hungarians over 25%. Austro-Hungary had the worst funded military of all the major powers, Italy included. This was in large part because through the years the Hungarian parliament had restricted military funding by using it as a bargaining chip for political concessions. A military bill in 1912 had partially corrected this situation, but by 1914 the net effect of such a long period of neglect was still considerable. Habsburg troops therefore went into war, poorly trained and equipped. However, James Lyon, the historian, writes that the Serbs had a number of their own issues. The recent Balkan Wars had seriously depleted stocks of artillery and rifle ammunition, cannons, rifles, medical supplies and other equipment, and by 1914 little of this had been replenished. The Serbian state budget was teetering on the edge of bankruptcy, had serious food shortages and a dangerous internal power struggle between a group of rogue military officers and the elected government. Although less well known, the Austro-Serbian front was of tremendous strategic importance, tying down large numbers of Habsburg forces that would otherwise have been sent to the western or eastern fronts. The first main target for the Austrian army was the Serbian capital. Belgrade lay just a few hundred metres from the border, situated on a hill at the confluence of two rivers, the Danube and the Sava. There stands an enormous fortress dating back to Roman times, when it was used to guard the empire against barbarians from the Pannonian Plain and Carpathians. In the Byzantine period, Belgrade served as the empire's northernmost outpost. In the medieval period, it was used as a base against the Ottoman Turks, who later controlled the city for themselves, until the Serbs achieved their independence. After severing diplomatic ties on the 25th of July, the dual monarchy of Austro-Hungary cut all telephone, telegraph and rail traffic with Serbia. Four days later, they started firing shells onto Belgrade from the Austro-Hungarian town of Semlin, now Zemun in Serbia, just across the border on the side of the river Sava. In the hours before the first bomb fell, the city's inhabitants rushed around buying as much food and other essential items as possible before scurrying home to prepare their cellars or even to bed down in large caves in the surrounding hills. Almighty explosions shook the city's houses and a terrible panic gripped the civilians. The Serbian government and army abandoned the capital. The Austrian campaign against Serbia was led by the governor of Bosnia and Herzegovina, Oskar Potiorek. His invasion plans envisaged an assault by three armies, 
the Habsburg Fifth Army would advance from Bosnia into northwest Serbia, the Second Army would attack from Croatia in the north, and the Sixth Army would launch a decisive blow from Herzegovina. They compromised a significant superiority of numbers over the Serbs. However, this would exist for only the first weeks of operations, when the Northern Army would have to depart for Galicia to fight the Russians. General Potiorek aimed to win a quick victory before Emperor Franz Josef's birthday. But in rushing the campaign, he made two grave strategic errors. Firstly, using just over half of his strength, and secondly, directing his main attack in hilly western Serbia, instead of the open plains of the north. The advance was accompanied immediately by violence against the local Serbian population, often senseless burning of fields and peasant huts. Worse was to follow. During the 13-day invasion, Habsburg troops massacred between 3,500 to 4,000 Serb civilians. The most appalling massacres recorded were in Sabac, which is a trading centre on the south bank of the Danube. After this town was taken on the 12th of August, with only light resistance, the invaders used the local women as human shields to help them suppress resistance in the surrounding areas. Many of the women were imprisoned for five days in a hotel, given only water and interrogated on the whereabouts of their soldier husbands and the Serb army's positions. There was also beatings and rapes. The Serbs fought with skill, endurance and a ruthlessness that compensated for their poor equipment. The main armies were mobilised in the central north of Serbia. Their commander, Vojvoda Putnik, initially believed the attack from the west was a feint. Once it became clear that it was the main thrust, he marched his troops to confront the Habsburg 5th Army, leading to the Battle of Cher Mountain on the 16th of August. After three days of intense fighting, in which neither side made any ground, the Austrian lines suddenly collapsed, and the soldiers retreated in panic across the rivers Drina and Sava. Almost 30,000 Austrians were wounded and six to 10,000 killed. The Serbs lost some three to 5,000 men, with over 15,000 wounded. The French reporter... Henry Barbie wrote, quote, The area between Cher and the river Yadar, where this tremendous battle took place, was nothing but mass graves and putrefying flesh. From the shadow of the woods emerged a stench so foul that it rendered the approach to the summit of Cher impossible. End quote. Habsburg forces made a second invasion in September and by November the Serbs were forced to retreat due to lack of artillery ammunition and to allow the enemy to take control of Belgrade. Less than a month later, however, the Serbian army inflicted a second humiliating defeat on the Austrians, pushing them back out of Belgrade and following them into Bosnia and Croatia. 
For a short period, the Serbs even threatened to conquer Sarajevo before a stalemate was reached. In a few short months, the war transformed Austro-Hungary's once proud field army of well over 450,000 men into a demoralised, defeated remnant numbering barely half that. It was a massive shock for the government in Vienna. What was to have been a quick and easy victory over their much smaller neighbour to avenge the death of Franz Ferdinand and to eradicate this Balkan upstart and remove the threat of Slav nationalism had turned into a debacle of epic proportions. The Serbian victory instead provided the fuel for the fires of national expansion and unification of the Balkan Slavs into one state. According to James Lyon, in his book Serbia and the Balkan Front, 1914, the main reasons for the Habsburg defeat were poor strategic planning and poor leadership. One main flaw was the chosen invasion route. Rather than attack Serbia at its most vulnerable point, the Morava River Valley, the invaders chose the less hospitable terrain of the marshes and mountains of western Serbia. In addition, the separate armies' attacks were never properly coordinated, and the Austrians also failed to make good use of their superior artillery. The Serbians, on the other hand, had good leadership and battlefield experience from the recent Balkan Wars. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The Balkan Front became an important part of the war, since victory for either side would affect the Eastern Front, and by extension, the Western Front. In the year 1914, the Russians possessed the largest army, 1,400,000 men in the standing army, and 5 million on mobilisation. The mobilisation was greatly speeded up by French-financed improvements to the railway system, which allowed the Russians to place two million men ready for action on the Eastern Front within 30 days. War began on the Eastern Front at the same time as on the Western. On the 15th of August, while the German forces in the West were held up by the forts of Liège, the Russian First Army under General Rennenkampf drove into East Prussia from the East and five days later inflicted a sharp reverse on the Germans at the Battle of Gumbinen. On the same day, the Second Army under General Samsonov advanced from the south, threatening the German right flank. 
the German concentration against France had left only one army to defend the eastern frontier. Its commander, General von Britwitz, panicked and ordered a general retreat behind the river Vistula, thereby abandoning the whole of East Prussia. General Moltke was furious and replaced Pritwitz with General Paul von Hindenburg, a stolid 66-year-old who had enjoyed a successful military career in Prussia's wars against Austria in 1866 and against France four years later. He was accompanied by his Chief of Staff, Major General Erich Ludendorff, an intelligent and hard-working staff officer who had been involved in some of the pre-war reworking of the Schlieffen Plan, and had already earned considerable renown for his conduct during the Battle of Liège on the Western Front. These two, Hindenburg and Ludendorff, would prove to be one of the great command teams of the Great War. The German staff were much helped in their analysis of the situation by the regular interception of Russian orders transmitted without encryption over the wireless. Hindenburg, with two extra corps detached on the Western Front, ordered the retreat of the 8th Army to stop, and he sent them to challenge Samsonov's army as it marched into East Prussia. Samsonov had serious problems. Countless lakes and woods forced him to split up his forces, while transport conditions were awful and his communications almost non-existent. The Germans first attacked his left flank and then his right. Before the Russians could react, it was already too late. By the 28th of August, the whole of the Second Army was cut off and became surrounded. The various entrapped formations tried to escape, but in vain, and soon they had no option but to surrender. By the end of August, over 90,000 would be sent into captivity. A further 78,000 were killed or wounded, and just 10,000 managed to escape. The Germans, who suffered only 13,000 casualties, named the battle Tannenberg to avenge the memory of a famous defeat in 1410 of Teutonic Knights against a Slavic army which occurred nearby. For the Russians, it was an unmitigated disaster. This victory of Tannenberg gave a tremendous shot in the arm for German pride. Overnight, Hindenburg became a national idol, while Ludendorff was saluted for his perceived genius. Despite Samsonov's collapse, General Renenkampf put up a good fight when the Germans launched an attack on his army, in what became known as the Battle of the Missourian Lakes, launched on the 7th of September, the same day as the opening of the Battle of the Marne, he evaded all Hindenburg's attempts to complete an encirclement. His armies retreated in great haste, covering 25 miles a day and switching units from one flank to the other as needs arose. German cavalry attempted to pursue their enemy but were beaten back by the rifle fire of the Russian rear guards. Renenkamp's formations were battered and beaten but most survived to fight another day. Nevertheless, the Germans had accomplished their main objective of pushing back the invaders from East Prussia. 
in the months that followed, the enemy maintained a threatening presence across the border, and indeed would again cross in force. But it no longer seemed plausible that a Russian steamroller would be able to thrust into Germany by that route. For now, the Germans returned their main focus back to the Western Front. The majority of the Russians, meanwhile, were deployed across the southern front of the Polish salient, facing the Austrians. This battlefront ran for 300 miles from the junction of the Austrian and Russian borders with neutral Romania to the city of Krakow in Austrian Poland. For much of that ran the crests of the Carpathian Mountains, through which strategic passes led down to the plains of Hungary and Galicia, and to the River Danube. The frontier was defended by large fortifications, of which those at Lemberg, today which is called Lvov, and Chemichel, had recently been modernised. The Russian advance commenced on the 18th of August, triggering a series of huge battles. Slow-moving, monolithic armies crashed into each other on the plains of Austrian Galicia. Cavalry skirmished in the gaps between the armies and dramatic manoeuvring on both sides sought the flanks of their opponents while desperately fending off threats to their own. It was the Russians who gained an edge. On the 3rd of September, they captured Lemberg, a key railway centre and the fourth largest city in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. They enforced the Austrians further back and on the 22nd of September besieged the strategic fortress town of Both sides suffered shocking casualties as simplistic infantry tactics frequently exposed soldiers to modern weaponry, but the Austrians came off worse, losing some 325,000 men to Russia's 225,000. Grudgingly, the Germans took steps to bolster their faltering ally by swiftly creating a Ninth Army in German Silesia, to be commanded by the now much acclaimed team of Hindenburg and Ludendorff. Fortunes between the Russians and Germans fluctuated as both sides attempted to encircle their opponents, and the Germans tried hard to capture Warsaw. Each side lost about 100,000 men. In the meantime, 127,000 Austrian troops were trapped in the fortress of Chemichel. They were lucky inasmuch as it had been a storehouse for munitions, supplies and food, but even so, they could not hold out forever. Attempts were made to break out, but each had failed dismally. By the end of the year, 1914, on the Eastern Front, the Russians had managed to hold on to just a token sliver of East Prussia. In contrast, they had lost much of Russian Poland to the German advance. It was in the south where the Russians had made the biggest gains, as they overran nearly all of Austrian Galicia. Losses on all sides had been immense. Up to 750,000 Russian soldiers, some 500,000 Austro-Hungarians and 140,000 Germans had become casualties in just five months of mass slaughter. The Russians immediately made clear their ambition for a permanent annexation of Galicia, 
with its mixed population of Ukrainian and Polish speakers. Their propaganda declared the former as a Russian people who aspired to unite their homeland, Eastern Galicia, to the Russian motherland. They were less confident about the 3.8 million Poles who had been largely content with their autonomy under the Habsburgs. For the Austro-Hungarians, Galicia was a significant loss since it contained about one-third of the western half of the empire's arable land. The invasion disrupted its agriculture and destroyed infrastructure, which became a key cause of the shortages and starvation that brought social and political turmoil in the later war years. The invasion of Galicia not only damaged Austria-Hungary economically, but also tore apart its fragile society. Over a million people fled their homes and sought shelter in the Austrian heartlands in the west, where they imposed a great financial burden. The arrival in the interior of hundreds of thousands of desperate Poles, Ukrainians and above all Jews, provoked racial tensions and anti-Semitism. The Russians immediately set about erasing all evidence of Habsburg influence or inconvenient multiculturalism. Habsburg eagles, for example, were torn from public buildings and shopkeepers were ordered to display signs in the Cyrillic alphabet. Russian festivals were imposed and the local Uniate church was suppressed. The Russian atrocities and ambitious plans to rebold and exclude populations, writes Alexander Watson, were a foretaste of the genocidal horrors inflicted upon the region in the mid-20th century. My name is Card Rydert and you've been listening to a History of Europe Key Battles podcast. Feel free to leave comments on the Facebook page or you can write to me directly at carl, that's C-A-R-L, at historyeurope.net. It's always great to hear from you. Next week, I will move into the year 1915, where the fighting continues, and when new states join the war, in particular the Ottoman Empire and Italy. I hope you can join me next time. Until then, all the best and goodbye.